Words from the Jordan Waters, the crowd had seen this carpenter before. But had they seen him this intense? The Bible says he stood and shouted. The traditional rabbinic teaching posture was sitting and speaking. But Jesus stood up and shouted out. The blind man shouted, appealing for sight. The sinking Peter shouted, begging for help. And the wild man shouted, pleading for mercy. John uses that same Greek word to portray the volume of Jesus' voice. Forget a kind clearing of the throat. God was pounding his gavel on heaven's bench. Christ demanded attention. He shouted because his time was short. The sand in the neck of his hourglass was down to measurable grains. In six months he'd be dragging a cross through these streets. And the people, well, the people thirsted. They needed water, not for their throats but for their hearts. So Jesus invited, Are your insides starting to shrivel? Drink me. What H2O can do for your body, Jesus can do for your heart. That's lubricate it, aquify it, soften what is crusty, flush what is rusty. And how? Well, like water, Jesus goes where we can't. Throw a person against a wall, his body thuds and drops. Splash water against a wall, and the liquid conforms and spreads. Its molecular makeup grants water great flexibility, one moment separating and seeping into a crack, another collecting and thundering over the Victoria Falls. Water goes where we cannot. So does Jesus. He is a spirit, not bound by a body. In fact, John parenthetically explains, when he says, living water, he's speaking of the spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in Him. The Spirit of Jesus threads down the throat of our soul, flushing fears, dislodging regrets. He does what water does, and thankfully we don't have to give Him directions. We give none to water, do we? Before swallowing, do we look at the liquid and say, Ten drops of you go to my spleen, I need fifty in cardiovascular detail, and the rest of you head north to my scalp, it's really itchy today. Water just somehow knows where to go. Jesus somehow knows the same. Your directions are not needed, but your permission is. Like water, Jesus doesn't come in unless swallowed. You can stand waist-deep in the Colorado River and still die of thirst. Until you scoop and swallow, the water does your system no good. Until you gulp Christ, the same is true. Don't you need a drink? Don't you long to flush out the fear, the anxiety, and guilt? You can. Note the audience of his invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you anyone? Well, if so, then step up to the well. You qualify for his water. All ages are welcome, both genders invited, no race excluded, scoundrels, scamps, rascals, and rubes, all welcome. You don't have to be rich to drink religious to drink, successful to drink, you simply need to follow the instructions of what, or better, whom to drink. Drink Him. In order for Jesus to do what water does, you must let Him go where water goes, deep, deep inside. Internalize Christ. Ingest Him. Welcome Him into the inner workings of your life. Let Christ be the water of your soul. Well, how is this done? Begin by heeding your thirst. Don't dismiss your loneliness. Don't deny your anger. Your restless spirit, churning stomach, and sense of dread that turns your armpits into swamplands, these are signal flares exploding in the sky, saying, 
We could use a little moisture down here. Don't let your heart shrink into a raisin. For the sake of those who need your love, hydrate your soul. Heed your thirst. And drink good water. You don't gulp dirt or swallow rocks. Do you drink plastic or paper or pepper? Well, mercy, no. When it comes to thirst of the body, we've learned how to reach for the right stuff. Do the same for your heart. Not everything you put to your lips will help your thirst. The arms of forbidden love may satisfy for a time, but only a time. Eighty-hour work weeks grant a sense of fulfillment, but never remove the thirst. Take special concern with the bottle labeled religion. Jesus did. Note the setting in which he speaks. He isn't talking to prostitutes or troublemakers, penitentiary inmates, or reform school students. No, he's addressing churchgoers at the National Convention. This is the Vatican on Easter Sunday. You half expect the Pope to appear in the next verse. Religious symbols are laid out like a yard sale. The temple, the altar, trumpets, and robes. He could have pointed to any items as a source of drink. But he doesn't. He points to himself. Religion pacifies, but never satisfies. Church activities might hide a thirst, but only Christ quenches it. Drink him, and drink often. Jesus employs a verb that suggests repeated swallows. Literally, the Bible says, Let him come to me and drink and keep drinking. One bottle won't satisfy your thirst. Regular sips satisfy thirsty throats. Ceaseless communion satisfies thirsty souls. Toward this end, I give you this tool, a prayer for the thirsty heart. Carry it just as a cyclist carries a water bottle. The prayer outlines four essential fluids for soul hydration, God's work, God's energy, His Lordship, and His love. You'll find the prayer easy to remember. Just think of W-E-L-L, -L, well. Lord, I come thirsty. I come to drink. To receive. I receive your work on the cross and in the grave. My sins are pardoned and my death is defeated. I receive your energy. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I receive your Lordship. I belong to you. Nothing comes to me that hasn't passed through you. And I receive your love. Nothing can separate me from your love. Don't you need regular sips from God's reservoir? I certainly do. I've offered this prayer in countless situations. Stressful meetings, dull days, long drives, demanding trips, character-testing decisions. Many times a day I step to the underground spring of God and receive anew His work from my sin and death, the energy of His Spirit, His Lordship, and His love. Drink with me from this bottomless well. You don't have to live with a dehydrated heart. Receive Christ's work on the cross, the energy of His Spirit, His Lordship over your life, His unending, unfailing love. Drink deeply and often, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. This is part one, Accept His Work. Chapter two, Sin Vaccination. In October of 1347, a Genoese fleet returned from the Black Sea, carrying in her cargo the death sentence for Europe. 
By the time the ships landed in Messina, Italy, most of the sailors were dead. The few who survived wish they hadn't. Fever racked their bodies, festering boils volcanoed on their skin. Authorities ordered the vessels out of the harbor, but it was too late. Flea-infested rats had already scampered down the ropes into the village, and the bubonic dictator had begun her ruthless march across the continent. The disease followed trade routes northward through Italy and into France and the northern nations. By spring, it had breached the border of England. Within a short and brutal five years, 25 million people, one-third of Europe's population, had died. And that was just the beginning. Three centuries later, it still raged. As late as 1665, an epidemic left 100,000 Londoners dead, taking some 7,000 lives a week until a bitter yet mercifully cold winter killed the fleas. No cure was known. No hope was offered. The healthy quarantined the infected. The infected counted their days. When you make a list of history's hardest scourges, rank the Black Plague near the top. It earns a high spot, but not the highest. Call the disease catastrophic, disastrous, but humanity's deadliest? No. Scripture reserves that title for a darker blight, an older pandemic, that by comparison makes the Black Plague seem like a cold sore. No culture avoids, no nation escapes, no person sidesteps the infection of sin. Blame the bubonic plague on the Yersinia pestis bacterium. Blame the plague of sin on a godless decision. Adam and Eve turned their heads toward the hiss of a snake and for the first time ignored God. Eve did not ask, God, what do you want? Adam did not suggest, let's consult the Christ.